2 Samuel chapter 13, finding my place. Some of you have seen paper fly out of my Bible, fly out of my pockets. And so if it's not a sticky note, it ain't going to stick. And if there's a big giant wind coming from my mouth, it can blow. So I'm not saying that some of you won't be collecting some of my notes. But one of the reasons that I put things within my Bible, notating things that I want to speak about, is to have an opportunity with clarity to not miss points. The type of teaching that we do is expositional. What I tend to as well do is not only study, but I move in a direction that is extemporaneous meaning that what is stored in my heart and what I'm presenting is at the same time at liberty and what the Lord wants to say and how he chooses to use it. It can be a little bit unnerving, but I say that because that's the style of teaching we do, is expositional. We simply explain what God has made very clear so that we're in great understanding of it. So this is what you need to know based on what you may have forgotten. David is entering in to a time in the latter years of his life in which a family crisis is looming. And part of that looming is, in fact, what he contributed to in weaving a plan of conspiracy to cover a sin that he had been engaged in. That has already been covered, in fact, so well that Jesus interceded by virtue of the word. And I say this with regard to the fact that when the prophets spoke, they spoke the heart of the Lord, his name, God, the Lord. And so his sin had been dealt with as a result of his confession, his sin of adultery, of murder, had been dealt with. He was not given the death sentence but a pronouncement of what would be for him a trail of tears for the years that remain, which at this point are about 20, were given clearly to him. And yet we also know that there were great promises that were rendered to him as well, that he lives in. And the importance on that narrative is that as we move through life, and as events, if you would, either catch up to us or bypass us to meet us later, we have the assurance of what God has spoken to us. He's a gracious, he's a good, loving God. And we have to stay in the grip of that. That's what David would have to do. Not to give up on God, but to retain a grip on God. And we're going to see that. There would be many forces that are going to come against him. And the sad thing is, is that some of those larger forces are right within his own family. Some may ask, well, is that God instituting that? No, that's God allowing the consequence of sin to play out. But a man and a woman and a child do not need to be played by sin. They can be those who subordinate to God can be victors over sin. 
When we looked on Thursday at Psalm 108, the title of it was, I think, or at least the illustration was Prince Valiant. Valiant victory with the Lord, overcoming with his strength. It hedged itself, and we used this on Friday, in what was praise to God, prayer to God, and ultimately standing in the promises of God. So that's a good theme coming even into today. We praise the Lord for his mercy and grace. We pray to the Lord as to how he wants to govern us. And the things that are on our heart, when Psalm 108 came up, David's worried both about the structure or the family, his community that he tends, who he governs over, and he's worried about the enemies. It pretty much is like that with us, isn't it? We're concerned about our families, and we are as well concerned about the enemies that are against our families, against us. Not a better time necessarily to hit this. But as this opens up, it shows us what happens when dysfunction has a place in the family. And by the way, it's only dysfunctional because it's not functional. That's the only reason. So one of the things that we do is say, huh, we recognize dysfunction for how it expresses itself, but how do I express myself to dysfunction and to turn this thing around? And so one of the first things is that we turn ourselves around. David had turned himself around. Therefore, now what he meets is not necessarily his own challenge, though we will see he's going to fail some areas. But now he has to anticipate, how do I turn this around? And some of it will be, indeed, not only practical and miraculous, but some of it also will be with peculiar pokings. He will have times in which his heart is poked and prodded and it doesn't seem as though there's going to be an outcome of good so here's another word on the narration there is always an outcome of good for you and I as believers because heaven is soon to be that place which we are invited to come up to that he has prepared for us what we're talking about right now is the hard stuff of life and you will either become hardened by it or you will remain softened by the Lord. The choice is always ours. I've seen in ministry throughout now a strong 25 years pastoring that the choices that people make are either to give up and to become hardened or to give in to the Lord and become soft, malleable, and usable. That's why I feel that we are. It opens up in 13, and it's now leading us to the sword that ultimately will come to David's house in an incident in which can only be best explained as dysfunctional, and we need to see that doesn't condemn a family. It just complicates a family. You need to understand that. If there's dysfunction, it only complicates things. That's it. But we have with the Lord the opportunity to have things corrected and tidied up and functioning very well. 
After this, verse 1 of chapter 13, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So it's a stop point there. This is a dysfunction. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, kings were foretold that they were not to multiply wives to themselves. David had done that. We know that at least presently, there are seven to his credit and innumerable women that by their culture they permitted to be a part of the king's lifestyle as well. As a result of that, his life is complicated. So all you ever have to do, as you might remember perhaps in your high school days or college days, is get between two people that love you and seemingly in the same justification and your life is complicated. Oh, it might be if you would flattering, but it's only to the degree of when more of you is being demanded and less of you is available to give out. Kind of a simple way to understand it. What do you do? It's one of the dilemmas even of fame. What do you do when there are those who want you all the time and believe that you indeed are available for them. You can't keep it up. You end up living a life in which you're on the hide and you don't want anyone to seek you at all. David may have very well found himself in this, but this is at least giving us an idea of the complications with regard to dysfunction. He violated what God had projected. Remember we talked about God preemptively working to save people from themselves? Well, back in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God preemptively worked, knowing that men would seek kings over them, and he knew what kings did based on a corrupt culture and those whom, indeed, the enemies that Israel was going to take over had ultimately moved in that area of great, great deprivation. I mean, they were just abased. And so God didn't want that. The dysfunction here is that David's the father of both Absalom and Amnon and Tamar. The two, Absalom and Tamar, have the same father, obviously, but they have also the same mother. And Amnon doesn't with regard to that. He's the father, but they have different mothers. That, that helps you understand what's happening right now. So what's the other thing that we know about this? It's an interesting word that's used, but it simply identifies her as being a lovely sister, and there's nothing wrong being a lovely sister. It's how sisters who are lovely are looked at. And in this case, it has great, I think, apropos to it. You know, we're given instructions on how in the church we are to have an esteem towards women who are likened as our mothers and women who are likened as our sisters. And it's a wonderful thing to see functionality within the potential of great dysfunctionality in the world. And that's a great thing to be brought back to. It's why there's so much 
love that is shown in a church is because it represents such functionality from the places that we've either been or that we know of others or presently. So that's a good thing. But it continues to give us some insight here as well. And this is in the personality of what we would say is Amnon. Amnon's the eldest son in David's family. Absalom's the one that the Bible will give us a kind of continued perspective on because we see things in his heart that's going to be revealed here. But we also see things right now in Amnon's heart. So he's the eldest son. You need to know that. Absalom's number three in the lineup. But he will take a first position effort very soon based on this incident. But there seems to be the word love used. But God would say, let's examine that. So this is what we know based on God's word concerning love and the study of it. God is love. Love is of God. That's good. Love is intended to be expressed first and foremost with God, the Lord God. Love is then given opportunity to be expressed communally in what we would call Philadelphian love, phileo, the love of brothers towards one another, family, neighbors, brothers and sisters towards one another. That's a secondary love. The third, Greek as well, is eros. That is appropriately contained and confined within marriage. And that's good, contained within marriage. Apart from God being the center of love and apart as well from there being the expression of neighborly love, phileo, brotherly love, same thing, loving one another as you love yourself, then the complication becomes when eros becomes the pursuit and only the pursuit without the purity. The only way that there's purity is obviously through the God who has given human sexuality to people. That's the bottom line. Some way or another, the Lord would say, okay, well, by the standard with which you walk and perhaps are exempt of guilt, how's your mind? And so he would address that because there's always the looking at as to, yeah, but what did you do? And Jesus would say, well, what did you think? And so the thinkers and the doers are all in the same spot. That's why there's nothing wrong looking into this kind of dysfunction if you think that everybody can walk out and say, well, that doesn't apply. It always applies with women, with men, with children. It applies. God wants it to be applied. But he wants it to be applied not with condemnation, but with understanding, with grace, with mercy. And you'll see how that plays in when I link up with it a scripture that's just present tense, hot off the press from last, I think, Thursday's devotion or Wednesday's. Very rewarding for me in that regard. But so we want to understand that this is talking about really defining love and that a man and that a woman can be highly deceived with regard to what love is. And if love is without God, then it can only be defined as one thing and that is lust towards another. 
But if a person, in fact, loves God and has done well in loving his neighbor, who wants to see you vulnerable to lusting after a person? The enemy does. The enemy of our soul does not care about purity and does not care about whether or not we have claim to being innocent before God or before our culture. He does not care. That's the way he works. He knows our vulnerabilities. Because, see, we're meant to be together. There's no doubt about that. And so people in particular who don't want to be with God, they want to be with anybody, anything. But even those who want to be with God and are with God still have the challenge of being vulnerable towards the wiles of the enemy. He seeks to maim, destroy, to kill. That's his goal. And he does that through the interpersonal weaknesses of people. Citing this again, David blew it as a king because he multiplied wives. He didn't have to, but he fell into a cultural ensnarement. We have a generation, and my generation wasn't exempt. That's the 50s, 60s, 70s generation was certainly not exempt of falling into a cultural, what is called normative now. Abnormality is becoming normality. And God would say, not really. It's just becoming so expressive and there isn't truth that's able to put it in check and people don't care about being checked in truth. Therefore, they check all the boxes and go crazy at all the liberties that they have. And so, in essence, power brought to David indiscretion. However, simply for encouragement, power was brought to Joseph, and he was not indiscreet at all. Power was brought to Joseph before actually he was powerful. And the power that Joseph had was being able to thwart the advances of a woman who had great authority, being the wife of the master over Joseph. Joseph kept doing his job, and he did it well. The Spirit of God was upon him with excellence. He did all things well. But there was an occasion in which she had made her residence clear of the servants and had endeavored to get Joseph to compromise his standard. You can read the story, but it's fascinating only in the sense that she could not fasten onto him, but to take his garment as he fled. Because a great passage in one of the epistles that Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy, is to flee youthful lusts, and guess what? He did. Well, are you implying that he lusted? There's no implication there. She did. He fled it. He ran away from it. It cost him everything for 13 years. God made up for the difference of the decision he made by exalting him using him where he would be because he was in a hard place, actually a prison. And God continued to build his life. Love that song that was sung today. Okay, what other examples are there? Daniel was a classic example as well with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were in Babylonian captivity in which cultural depravity was rampant. It was a part of the life style of where they were at. How could God put me in a corrupt place 
like Babylon, our heart is fixed on the Lord, our eyes towards Jerusalem. How possibly could he allow this to happen to me? Because he allows there to be circumstances that indeed will be testing to you and trials for you. But he would say to you, but I'm not testing you and trying you with evil. It's that evil is present where I'm placing you. And we have a great classic passage of scripture that you can find that in. And I'm going to... Um, I'm going to also direct you to another one, but I don't want to get off base. So God makes allowances for us to be in difficult situations that require for us diligence in what may be the provocation. First thing is flee from the situation. And the next thing is grab your word regarding the situation. As this presents itself, and I want to continue here, I need to. Verse 2 says that Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. So a couple of points that came out to me is that one, as a result of this blended family, as a result of King David multiplying wives, the family now being put truly into a carnal blender. We can see right now how this all begins to work itself out in godlessness as opposed to godliness. And not on the part of one, that's Tamar, she'll be a victim. But Amnon will find himself as well a victim. Not of his circumstances, but of his mind, of his soul, of his spirit. That's where he will find himself a victim. The other player, Absalom, he's going to be found a victim of his pride and of his temper. He's going to all, as we look later on down the road, find himself as well in the same predicament that Amnon will. And therefore, it's kind of interesting how that works. The emphasis, again, may be in a, might be a good title right now, is The Scar of Tamar, The Scar of One Who Truly Was Innocent, Declared as pure before the Lord, she would have been in a home that was established for the king's daughters, she being at least one that we know named of specifically, and others that were part of the royal family would have been, if you would, a convent for those who would be seen as valuable to be married. That's good. Amnon, too, as well as Absalom, would have had their own quarters, and probably they're not living together in the same quarters, but they would have had a bachelor pad. And the same was true about them. That was for their protection. That was for the women's protection. So things are in place. That's a good thing to know. Our protections in place within families that allow there to be the unique blend of beauty and strength to be in a facility that is to be about God and about maturing in love one towards another and about being prepared one day to be able to marry someone 
in which intimacy ordained by God can be fully realized and then appreciated in procreation through what we know and take delight in children. Awesome. So this continues to simply give us, as the story unfolds, the details that we're sorting through. So we know this, if love has been defined and God has been the one who puts the parameters in place, and we see other measures as well that are so noted in scripture and we'll look back on that, this is not simply love sickness, it's simply sick love. It's what we would define and had just mentioned lust. There is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and there is the pride of life. And when those are at play, then people will be played. When those are put at bay, and a person is choosing to, in its safety net, where it ought to be kept, and as Joseph was one who modeled that, as well as Daniel, then God does remarkable things even in the difficulties of it. So as this advances right now, I do want to say something as well. For when it says he became sick, for she was a virgin, it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. That word's right now, a very important word in our culture. There are some things that are just flat out improper to do, but it usually takes getting caught for somebody to use the word, oh, that was an improper thing that I said, that was an improper thing that I did. I think you know that that goes back now many, many years in times in which those who in places of authority, in fact, abused their authority and they got discovered. And so rather than it being simply an impropriety, which it was, it was just an improper thing to do. God understands about those things. He wants us to have an understanding on that. There probably isn't at any time in culture concerning the things of God in which there isn't great impropriety. It's one of the reasons why God yearns to have a revival in which the things regarding impropriety are put behind us. And the need to be able to apprehend God in a personal way in which that being put behind us leads to truly a glorious, redemptive moment of what is before us. Because that needs the stuff that gets put behind us because of the Lord is truly needing to stay there. And we need to stay on track on the things that are before us. That's hope for you and I. For any man or woman who has failed in this, God wants you and I to know he hasn't in his faithfulness towards us. It's an incident. It's a situation. The most grievous thing that any person can do on the face of the earth, choosing to turn their face from God, is to not have a relationship when they die. That's grievous. Jesus would say that all manner of sin is forgiven, but this is not, and that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in which all of the beautiful, effectual works of God delivering his songs to you, his music to you in melody, poetry, prophecy, the word of God pronounced from the pulpit, 
was dismissed. The whispering of the Holy Spirit in the ear, not going to pay attention to it. That is when in the last breath denied the condemnation. And it's so sad. As you can see and if you've heard in most of the cases right now, a lot of our big figureheads in the arts and entertainment area are dying. And here's why it's sad. It's not that the death in itself is sad. It's the fact that I do not have any assurance that they had the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart when they died. For some of you that, like me, may have remembered a guy named Eddie Van Halen, probably one of the most prolific guitar players that our culture celebrated. I have no reassurance that he had a relationship with God, but from testimony, he lived a hard life of chosen debauchery. Oh, you wouldn't see it when he's magnified on the screen and while he was playing. But it saddens me that I don't know. I don't know. And it's not just enough to say, yeah, but he turned his life around. Great, if he did, but did he turn his face to the Lord? That's my question. Was there any among his peer group that said, you need to turn your face to God? It's been turned to the camera too long. It's been turned to your fan base too long. When did he find out that he was going to die? And did anybody come in to say, hey, before, Eddie, you do that? I haven't heard of report. I'm just saying his guitar riffs will not save him, nor the admiration of those whom he now has passed from. And in my opinion, from what I know about that culture, he would have lived his life as obscenely as what we see depicted here. And the only one that could save him is the one whom we speak about presently, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's heart is that everyone have an opportunity to turn from their wickedness and to his righteousness, to be forgiven and cleansed of sin. And sometimes this message, though we may be the choir and we've heard it and we understand it, somebody that may receive this today or later would be saying, my goodness, I am Eddie Van Halen. Meaning that like him, that is the way that I live presently. That is the way that I am. Don't know. Good. If not today, archived for later. God knows. Dysfunctionality is not simply within the family. It's within our culture, which then does what? It encroaches on the family. But this is not simply love sickness. It could best be defined as sick love. And it could be best defined as well simply as it was qualified lust. We all battle with it. I'll have challenges with it. No one really can deny it. But at the same time can be dismissed on what? We flee from it. That's what Joseph will be able to say. In the face of lust, one who was pursuing me, I fled from her, cost me everything. But then God came back and gave him everything and more that he lost for 13 years. Some people know that it takes time for the restorative work of God to still use you in places that you would rather not be, but God is still at work using you at the places you'd rather not be to place you in the position that you never dreamed could ever be possible. Again, some of the great testimonies of revival have broken up 
and broken out because God came in, put together the pieces of a man and woman's life. Women today who hear the message will go, I'm Tamar. Well, there's a scar that she had, and there is a part where we don't understand the full story, but we do understand the story based on what the Lord did for another woman who conspiratorially was also subjugated to the very same thing, only with potentially for her a death sentence upon her. Here's what I want as well to be able to help to find here in two passages of Scripture, because again, the narration is big, and I understand that. But if you'll go to Leviticus and as well Deuteronomy, and I think I'll go to um, Leviticus first to let you know that there was a law established so that you're not thinking this is just, you know, picking on somebody or taking it lightly. The law was established in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of that that's considered the law of Moses, it was established. God began to put the law into men's hearts because there were exceptions that civility or governance through civil agencies made to cite. Abraham was one of those who, in fact, if you would, had dysfunction within his family. Oh, it can't be. Well, it was. If you look into these scriptures, on one of the last kings that he lied to, Abimelech, he had convinced Abimelech that whom was with him was his sister and asked Sarah to lie for him so that he would not be killed on account of her beauty. But what we do know is that actually not only was she his wife, but in fact she was his sister from a different mother, same father. And you say, well, there you go. There's a justification. It was a cultural allowance because when he came out of Ur of the Chaldees, he lived in a cultural pagan situation. So God simply allowed that civil law to prevail in what was a union as he built a man up in faith. But when Moses came on the scene, God began to redirect culture to say, I'm going to put perimeters around you because it's going to go crazy if I don't. You'll be doing everything and anything based on cultural permissiveness or the bent of your own heart. So God made provision that was lawful. And he said, so these are the things that I'm going to cite. It's not a justification for what Amnon did. What we see back in the law, and that's in Leviticus, it's a book of basically how to behave how to keep pure, how to do things right, how to please God. It says in verse 9 of 18, the nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness shall not be uncovered. So then you go to Deuteronomy. So that's 18.9. It's very simple. It goes actually through a whole lineage of the do-nots. Because we know that in our time right now, in culture, carnality, human sexuality, is exploited. So we're just talking about basically what the scriptures have already cited. Everybody's somebody's son, daughter, mother, father. That's how broad it is. There's no one exempt from it. 
So in Deuteronomy chapter 22, to move back on the severity of what Amnon right now, and this is a prelude, according to the law. It says, if any man, verse 25, finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. The reason that this is important is just in advance of this. It gives another situation in which a death sentence would be imposed on both of them. This is highlighting right now an exemption for Tamar based on what was the, uh, literally the crime committed against her. Though we haven't gotten into that, we can see things building up. And it's being anchored here so that we understand God has already spoken his heart on this word. And so when he speaks his heart on a word, we're to take it to heart. There are things that have been hedged in here that allow us to understand the severity of the law, but the purpose of it was to protect people from each other on the potential of being vulnerable with each other. So I cite those to let you know that this already would have been something that even David should have been, by recitation, able to understand. Because the request for now what Amnon is going to do will go to his father. So he's not lovesick. He's just sick right now. He has forsaken the law of God. And he's received bad counsel we will receive soon in the next verses. And so even coming back to this, to me, one of the things that you're able to do, we are able to reflect on the moment that we set eyes upon the love of our life. And remember what we called it? We called it butterflies in the belly. Now, sometimes athletes will say the same, but I think actually... Athletes are more inclined on athletic events to say, oh man, stomach knotted up. But generally with love is this idea that there's just butterflies, this wafting, this effervescence, this out of mind experience. And God wants you and I to know reflectively that's still a defining qualifier in the physiology of a man and woman. There's just something that happens in the belly because of the heart, because of the mind, most importantly, because of the spirit. Where does that lead? This is not the same. This has been defined quite differently. And so rather than butterflies in his belly, I think he's got houseflies in his gut. Houseflies are always moving towards that which is what? Dead and decaying. So even though the picture, and it does humor me as well, that's one way to define it for those who need a picture. They were really horseflies or houseflies in his gut. It was going against all reasonableness and against the law of Moses. And it was arguing with ultimately condemnation by law that would condemn him basically to death. He was going against all logic here. Here's the counsel that he received. He received it first by the word of God. We have to always assume that what is narrated is also 
orated to a man's heart. Improper for Amnon. There we go. Improper for Amnon. Point three, counselor comes in. Bad counsel. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. This is the type of friends he kept. If you keep friends that are crafty, you need to say, bye. It's not working for me. I was going to get clever and I decided not to. Crafty means that in them is something that is outside of the realm of deep spirituality. It's not guys that have clever humor. We've got really some awesome, uh, we just have some wonderful humorous guys around here. But this craftiness means it's in opposition to God. That's what this identifies. So it's an opposition to God. And the other thing that you need to know is that Benadab is actually Amnon's cousin. So there you go. It's dysfunction again. He's a friend that's a cousin. And he's a cousin because it's David's brother. So basically, Abinadab is going to be David's nephew. How crazy is that? Whose fault is it? Well, men that ultimately were not leading their families spiritually, not really looking into what the guys are doing, what the guys are saying. That's why, you know, my dad tapped into my heart. And if not, then elders and deacons would. Wasn't a good thing to be skipping church and going down to the pool hall, which amazes me because the pool hall was actually in the basement of the church. <laughs> it was just a recreational pool hall. But I knew where I didn't belong, and I knew where I chose to go. And I had a guy that spoke the word of God, and it was like a lightning bolt. Probably the reason why I lost my red hair. He redirected my life. You've heard me tell you how men were used in my life to redirect me. My brother, who's now with the Lord, and an elder and a deacon who said, get where you belong. And that may be, again, the word that he needed to hear, but he heard it from false counsel, from a crafty guy. So be confident of this. Whom you choose to associate yourself with will influence you on ultimately whom you may become or what you ultimately may end up being vulnerable towards. And he said to him, Why are you the king's son becoming thinner day by day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So where do you know that's been addressed? It can't be love because love is patient. Love is kind. Love has a perimeter. It can't be love. It's lust with conspiracy. And so Jonadab said to him, Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. And so basically I'm going to wrap up here that I might eat from her hand. There are wonderful things that we receive from the hands of others. But when there's malice to it, in this case, we already see what's happening is to ensnare her. Then you have to be able to say, then she needs to be ultra wise and on guard. And this really is, and I want to be able to cite this, 
this is not her fault. She is going to be, in fact, in every way identified as a victim. And you may say, man, this is just going on too long. It's because it's a long and windy road that God has had to deal with men, with women, with families, even to this point. We have it now. And God's call for us is to say, what adds up? And what adds up is his word. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, his word adds up. His law is true. How can a man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to the word of God. And that's, by the way, phrased as a young man. Keeping it to the word of God. So we need to be those who, again, are encouraging our youth to be in the word of God, to respond to the word of God, to not respond to the culture that is craftily trying to change your mind about the God who has written his word and says, I don't change. I don't change what I've said. I know exactly what I'm doing. Because as the lineage of culture invades, the lineage of purity is then evaded. It's no longer sought after. No one even is able to have a redirection towards it. So the characters here are all going to suffer greatly. Every single one presented here will suffer greatly, which tells me something. Sin has a repercussion that does affect people. And you may say, is there anything redemptive in this at all? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It covers both principles, both what happens when sin is in effect, but the promise of God to those in faith who believe are forgiven eternal life. This is the worst that it will be to what we yet have an inability to apprehend and the best that it could ever be, ever hoped for. So I leave this, and it is, it's a cliffhanger. Even as you read ahead, it's a cliffhanger because the conclusion has not yet been met out in its teaching. But I did want to share a word of encouragement with regard to the, oh no, I know somebody like this, or I was somebody like that, or could I be somebody like that? So the answer is yes, we probably know somebody, we could, probably could be somebody, and maybe we were somebody. So now that we understand that we're all somebody that could be in awareness and guilty of all of it, let's go to the beautiful part. In chapter 8 of John where I taught, Jesus was in the temple early in the morning teaching a throng of people and in the midst of his teaching, there was a woman brought in, and the phrase is caught in the act of adultery, and you know who brought her in. The same guys that are right now bringing this mindset to Amnon to do wrong to his sister is the same mindset that the Pharisees and the Levites had with this woman that they brought before the Lord. And they basically put her before the Lord, and how would you judge this woman? And here's the conclusion of it. Who's without the first sin? You go ahead and throw the first stone. And if you caught the teaching, that whole area 
from not only the proper area of the temple, but all of the temple mount was in beautiful laid stone, polished, beautiful. And he's writing on his finger as he stoops down to that charge. And we don't know what it was that he wrote, but very likely he wrote on that stone with his finger in the manner in which Moses saw the testimony of God's word written on tablets of stone. It very likely may have been etched, not in dirt, but literally on polished marble. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet your neighbor's house or his wife, his animals, his servants, or his stuff. Emphasize, don't, don't. And it may be that they saw, however that finger may have chiseled that in there, etched it in the stone, and they one by one said, guilty as charged. I was looking at my father, I was looking at my neighbor's animal. One, one like that. Looking at the house, he's got a better one than me. Looking at his wife, hooey, she's a snap-eye. One by one, it says, they turned and left from the oldest to the youngest. And here's the thing that I'm saying. Before she would have been brought in and probably from the neighboring community, which is outside the Temple Mount area, but it's a residential neighboring community, vast, she would have been paraded down those streets, those corridors, and I called it simply the walk of shame, being subjected to people looking out of their doors and looking at her, and probably having a barrage of insults directed towards her, spitting. And as they bring her up through the Temple Mount, very likely what they did is they entered through what would be the southern end, and it would have been probably at that place that the entrance to the temple where Jesus was teaching was in the women's court, and they would have crossed through what was called the beautiful gate. She enters in condemned and gossiped about and slandered. We do not see the perpetrator of that same sin being brought in, just her. Jesus says after they turned, do you see your accusers? And she And he says, or she says, no, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And guess what? She crosses through being dragged, humiliated, put before the Lord. And I call, I believe the teaching was before the face of virtue. And she leaves as a freed woman, guess what? At the same door, the beautiful gate. She enters shamed and humiliated. She leaves beautified and virtuous. That's the closing point, leaving beautified, virtuous, because she had an encounter, not with ruthless men, but encounter with a prince valiant, the lover of her soul. That's the point that I'm making. That's the point that I want to close on.